Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. On the podcast today, we have Richard Lee. Richard is best known for having been a trader at Steve Cohn's hedge fund, SAC Capital, and for having insider trading charges against him dismissed after a seven-year fight to clear his name. Richard initially pleaded guilty to insider trading charges in 2013, and upon discovery of new evidence in 2017, he moved to withdraw his original plea. On June 21, 2019, a federal court judge for the Southern District of New York granted Richard's motion to vacate his plea. And then on November 27, 2019, federal prosecutors dismissed all charges against him. I first met Richard in 2013, soon after he first pleaded guilty. We've been friends and have worked together closely ever since. On the podcast today, Richard and I discussed the entire story that led to his incredible outcome. So coming up, Richard Lee, Insider Trading Charges Dismissed on White Collar Week. I hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi folks and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special podcast today. One of my old friends already, Richard and I have known each other for uh, over seven years. This is Richard Lee and uh, he's well known uh, because of his case um, in a hedge fund uh, case that was brought by Preparara in the Southern District of New York, and it was dismissed. And uh, that's a rare thing that happens, um, certainly in the uh, prosecution world, and especially in insider trading cases. So uh, Richard's going to talk all about that. We're going to divide this podcast into uh, multiple sections. The first is basically going to be an introduction and bio and uh, some information about the case itself. Um, the second is going to be more generalized about the hedge fund industry and um, specifically what folks misunderstand, a um, little bit about SAC Capital where, where Richard worked and maybe some of the other places. And then the, uh, the third part is going to be uh, lessons learned. And uh, there are a lot of lessons that Richard learned and that we learned together throughout this. Um, and notably about uh, attorney selection and what to do when you're in trauma, especially when you first get arrested. And uh, so structurally, this is a little bit different than the way that we, uh, we usually do things on the podcast, but I think it's the appropriate structure for, uh, for this particular podcast. So let me say hello to Richard. And uh, this is Richard Lee. Richard, so welcome to White Collar Week and welcome to, uh, to everybody. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, and um, thank you for your friendship over the years. Uh, it has been about a year since the case was dismissed, and um, uh, I think with some perspective, I'm able to speak about it um, with more clarity and, and more reflection. So I, I really welcome the opportunity to talk about uh, what I went through, what I've learned, and uh, most importantly, um, the lessons learned for um, for folks that might find themselves in a similar situation. And I think also for folks who are taking a look at this period of time in history, uh, comparing it to the SNL scandal or comparing it to the dot-com bust, 
uh, and trying to make some sense as to um, you know what was happening at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, or, I'm looking or, forward to it. Or, or might be ha- happening soon with um, SBA and PPP litigation. So the, there's no question that this was a unique period of time um, that you experienced. And uh, um, I know how hard it was for you and your family. So um, why don't we go right into um, your kind of um, introduction in your bio okay. and, and then into the case itself. And um, this is, there's no question that uh, this is going to be... Uh, 95% you and uh, 5% me. So uh, why don't you go for it? Sure, absolutely. So uh, my name is Richard Lee. I'm a former portfolio manager at SAC Capital. And SAC Capital was um, indicted in t- 2013. It was, a, it was a relatively famous case. And um, the firm pled guilty. Um, the firm uh, then closed down and uh, a new firm was opened, or the, the old firm, in, in some sense, was was opened under a, a new name called Point Seventy Two. Um, it's uh, it was a pretty well known um, case at the time. Um, I worked at SAC for about two and a half years. Before that, I uh, had worked at a number of other hedge funds, and I had worked um, uh, for a couple of years for the, the Clinton Foundation, which was a a nonprofit. And I started my career, I went to uh, college at Brown University, and I started my career working in consulting at McKinsey. So um, that is, that's my uh, career background. I would say, um, and maybe we can get into this at, at a later date, but the trajectory of the hedge fund industry from the time that I had joined up until the time of uh, the prosecution of SAC, uh, you know, really changed um, uh, and it was something that I was, I, I guess, fortunate to partake in or, or, or witness. Uh, but I think it's, you know, important to talk about when we discuss sort of the business ethics of the of the industry and the information gathering practices, and, and ultimately how it became a target for for, for uh, prosecutors. Um, I guess probably, uh, you know, the most pertinent place to start would be, uh, um, you know, how my case started in, in terms of how I was targeted by. Um, by the government. And uh, I guess one thing to point out would be, uh, it, you know, it was about 2008 or 2009 when the government through the FBI started approaching hedge fund traders, uh, trying to uh, coax them into cooperating with the government's investigation. And, you know, ultimately, um, you know, this all exploded into a series of prosecutions that began in the fall of 2009. And at that time, there was an explosive article that was published in the Wall Street Journal at that time about, you know, the government engaged in uh, uh, investigating, you know, what they called a vast insider trading conspiracy across hedge funds. And this is something that, you know, I witnessed from my seat at SAC Capital, uh, seeing folks, some of whom I, were, uh, I was acquainted with and, and most who I, I didn't know. Uh, getting arrested left and right. And they did, in fact, arrest a, a couple of my former colleagues uh, at SAC Capital. And uh, it continued to unfold over the next two, three, four years, uh, up until March of 2013. So at this point, you know, uh, this is, you know, fully in the, pers- you know, fully in front of, of Wall Street. People uh, widely speculate that the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York is targeting uh, my former boss, Steve Cohen. 
And um, a number of people, you know, um, in my firm have already been charged uh, and or pled guilty and or um, I don't believe anyone was had been taken to trial yet at that point. So um, uh, when I was walking home in March of 2013, and it was my actually it was actually my second to last day at SAC. They were closing the Chicago office, and I was thinking about other things that I could do with my life. I think I was 32 or 33 at the time. Hmm. Um, you know, I was walking home, and two FBI agents uh, approached me in front of a Macy's on State Street here in Chicago. Uh, they asked me if uh, who I was, uh, and then they played uh, a tape for me, which I couldn't really hear at all. But the, uh, they asserted that I had committed insider trading. I had no memory of this um, conversation that I had had with a Wall Street sell-side research analyst four years prior. And I think it's important to note that it, you know, they were playing something for me, which had occurred so long ago that I really didn't remember it. And uh, that's what sort of began a whirlwind of um, anxiety and uh, just a crazy experience that uh, resulted in myself pleading guilty to securities fraud, to insider trading. So, uh, Richard, just to be clear, they, they, they played you a recording of things that had happened far in the past. So when you say you didn't remember it, it's, you, you, conduct, you conducted a lot of business. There were a lot of different transactions you did, obviously, as a, as a, as a trader. So there'd be no reason for you to remember specifically what they played for you at that time. That's right. You know, when people talk about insider trading, and if they've seen the movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen, you know, they talk about getting illicit information from lawyers that are on transaction teams, or from investment bankers, or from company insiders. This was an entirely different discussion. This was a discussion with a sell-side research analyst, whose job it is to talk to clients all day long, mm -hmm. distribute uh, published research to clients, and the reason why this call was recorded was not because anyone was being wiretapped. Well, it was because there was an execution trader, somebody who takes buy and sell orders from the client on the call. And it was a call that their own compliance had recorded and then provided to the SEC in the fall of 2012, I think principally in light of the fact that um, they were trying to overturn every stone related to SAC Capital and see if they could find something. So that's, I think, what makes this uh, a little bit different than um, how people would ordinarily think of when they think of insider trading. It was, um, it was uh, by all accounts, sort of a run-of-the-mill type conversation that, that somebody in my shoes would have with seven or eight different folks every single day. So we'll continue. Okay, sure, absolutely. So um, there, from that period of time, in, in and I believe this is March 28th of 20, 2013, you know, that, that's sort of what caused this domino effect of, um, and the only way I can really frame it at this point is, is this sort of insane rationalization of this emotional journey that I went through where I was frantically trying to find an attorney to represent me. Um, I uh, was effectively Googling and cold calling um, white collar defense attorneys, people's names I would read in stories and I would call their attorney who was listed on, on the story to see if they could represent me. And it turned out that, you know, half of the attorneys were already conflicted at that time. And for whatever reason, I ended up uh, selecting an attorney, um, um, my first attorney, so to speak, um, who then led me through the process where I began to uh, cooperate with the government. And cooperation really, at that point, meant just going in and having interviews with the government uh, and having and taking their questions. 
uh, up to this point where um, uh, it basically seemed that I had no choice other than to plead to this thing that I had no memory of and which I felt that I was strongly innocent of. Um, and it culminated, you know, sort of in, in, in me reading um, this allocution that had been written by my attorney um, in front of a judge in July of, of that year um, in, in sort of a secret proceeding. And then, you know, a few days later, that plea being unsealed concurrent with the indictment of SAC, they're sort of frosting with the cherry on top for the, from the, I think from the U.S. attorney's perspective. Because not only were they, in, you know, indicting SAC, but, you know, here's another uh, guilty plea. The seventh person, I believe, at the time that um, uh, was either indicted or, or pled to, to, to charges fr from SAC Capital. So, um, in that process Sir, itself. Sir Richard, before, before you move forward, so you must have had a series or a lot of conversations with your lawyer at the time. And that led up to um, your proffers and that led up to ultimately to uh, a guilty plea. And w what was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeff, it's really, you know, from my standpoint today, I, 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 in some respects, we're not so tragic. I, I sort of marvel over my state of mind at that point. You know, after the FBI approached me, there was a, sub a series of subsequent sort of sleepless nights. And uh, it's it's something that I try to explain to people, but when something like this happens, you you know I I personally felt just terrible about my my life, and uh, not that I I was guilty of what I was being accused of, but just you know how could something like this be happening? Um, uh, was it was it a kind of retribution for not um, doing more public service earlier in my life? Uh, that uh, you know I had been blessed in so many ways, and and that's something I, I really feel is the case. And maybe I, I should have been doing more volunteer work, or I maybe, you know, with great um, privilege comes great responsibility, and maybe I've been um, issuing that in, in some respects. So when I began to select attorneys, um, you know, there were, there were a couple of uh, key things that I, I, I would say key misconceptions that I had made. The first was that it was impressed upon me that it was important to select a defense attorney who had been a former prosecutor. Uh, in that office, the the Southern District of New York, and um, for whatever reason, I had that notion stuck in my mind, and would only look at uh, defense attorneys that had had that. And I think the logic is that, oh, you know, these are their former colleagues, and so if they come in and they make an assertion for their client's innocence, that that carries more weight because it's a person that they know. In reality, um, I don't believe that that's the case. I um, I don't believe that. Um, having a defense attorney who's a former prosecutor helps at all. And in fact, um, in some respects, uh, it could actually hurt. And we can get into that um, at a later point. Sure. You know, what had happened at that point effectively was um, the government, um, you know, it, 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 they sort of, I don't want to say it was a purposeful trap, but they, they, they basically dangle something called cooperation, which is, you know, if you come in and you cooperate and, and you talk with us, ultimately, if you plead guilty, um, you know, every single person, and this is actually factually true, every single person who had been given a cooperation agreement by the government uh, did not go to prison, save two people, and those two had extenuating circumstances. So the argument was, you know, go in and talk to them. What do you have to lose? And in the worst case, um, um, you know, all you're doing is sort of buying insurance because, you know, nothing, nothing will happen at that point. 
in practice, what actually occurred was that um, these discussions were not these discussions were not about a fact-finding mission on behalf of the government. These discussions were sort of predicated on trying to induce uh, the target, that is me, to um, give leverage to the government. Um, and it could be leverage not in terms of admission of criminal guilt, but it could be leverage in terms of character, uh, ar arguments that they could use regarding character, anything that they could help them uh, with respect to putting you on trial. And there becomes a, a, a sentiment, and this was certainly my feeling, was um, you know, once you begin to cooperate, you're past the point of no return. Um, you've already started to tell them about, your, and you, know, you're, you're, it is, um, you have to be completely honest, mm -hmm. and you have to be completely forthright about anything that, uh, anything that can be used against you. So um, you really just have to come to them with sort of open arms with respect to all of your conduct not just relating to this you know, insider trading case, but anything that you might have ever done in life that could be used by a defense attorney on cross-examination, whether you stole a candy bar or uh, any number of these types of things, you're expected to really come, come forth and, and disclose all of this to them. So, so, so Richard, make it, making sure that we're not jumping ahead to the lessons learned section oh, so sure. fast, but there's no question that at that time you're in trauma, you're vulnerable, they know it, you, you probably don't know it, but your attorney knew, knows it or should know it. And, and, and there you are um, pretty much uh, prey to whatever, whatever their agenda is. And um, there's no way that you understand what's in your own personal best interest. I, I think... Um, um, <laughs> Uh, I think that's exactly right. The reality is it's the circumstances of the situation that, that um, one is in. You know, you're, you're more or less told um, when you're the target of a criminal investigation, you can't talk about your case with anyone except your attorneys and your wife. Uh, so, um, you know, this life-changing event that I'm going through, I, I didn't have anybody to rely upon other than uh, my wife, um, who, you know, is not American and really was just scared throughout this uh, period of time. I had a six month old daughter at home um, who I did not want to leave, <laughs> I, you know, um, and, uh, and then I had attorneys. And, you know, when I talk about attorneys, defense attorneys who are former prosecutors, you know, what they carry with them is, is much of the cynicism and, and much of the, um, I would say much of the cynicism of, of being a former prosecutor and the view that um, at times, you know, when the government begins to target you, uh, they already have you, uh, there's a term dead to rights uh, in, terms of, in terms of the case. So, you know, many um, defense attorneys, and in fact, this is the case, one I did not pick, immediately started talking about a guilty plea and cooperation without even discussing whether or not, you know, the merits of my, my belief very strongly at that time that, that I was innocent. Um, that was a pretty remarkable uh, defense attorney I interviewed. So, um, you know, there is a lot of bias that pervades the defense attorney's mind in terms of the way that they're advising you. And, you know, I think at that time, I was just so out of my mind that I didn't want to have to make a decision. I didn't want to have to make these choices. So um, I surrendered sort of my agency, in a sense, to attorneys. And attorneys are advisors. You know, attorneys cannot tell you what to do. 
And I think that's probably something that I did not stress enough in my mind. I, I probably even wasn't aware of it. I, I think I basically said, look, guys, just what, what do I do here? Just tell me what to do. And I think that uh, was, a, you know, obviously, in hindsight, it's 2020. It was a tragic mistake. And, and you know, just because um, we've had a long relationship since and uh, because you're a, uh, a regular on our white collar support group, that meets weekly, that abdication of control to attorneys is a, is a, a huge issue that people um, often regret later. And um, one of the things that I know that you became aware of later is that you're really a cog in a very large machine that the attorneys um, have these relationships with the prosecutors and they're looking to maintain a certain level of, of, of overall relationship with prosecutors because they have case after case after case. And I don't want to go so far as to make the claim that, that any, uh, that every attorney is not looking out for their client's best interest, that particular client's best interest. But it's at least theoretically possible that any particular attorney at any given time might be looking to take care of his entire network, his entire fleet of, of cases, and not the decisions that are made aren't necessarily for that client's particular best interest. So, how do you um, how how do you feel about that? I mean, do you think that that played in part of this? I mean, look, Jeff, I think you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. The the reality is, um, and look, you know, I, I was in an, a money manager, right? We always look at people's incentives. The reality is, any one client for a defense attorney, unless it's a corporation, is transactional in nature, right? And uh, unfortunately, in many people's cases, um, you know, their life is on the verge of you know being utterly destroyed in a in a way where there is no repeat business from from a, 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 an individual criminal defense client. So, um, you know, if I were a, a defense attorney, right, what do I care about? I I care about the ecosystem that I have, the good relationship I have with the prosecution uh, and the judge and my peers in the space, uh, and um, obviously, you know, in I have this idea of my fiduciary duty to my clients, but the reality is, you know, look, my experience um, uh, was that, you know, uh, there is advice and then there is telling somebody what to do. And there is a line that uh, bifurcates the two. And maybe this is hindsight, but, you know, I feel that what I did very poorly was to surrender my agency to the attorney. And to some extent, you know, you know, and I think it's a very fine line for, for most attorneys because it would be, if I were one, is to understand where you stop in terms of here, here is how I see the case. And, you know, I'm sorry, you, you're asking me to, you know, what you want, what, what to do, but it's actually your choice to make. Um, and I, and I, I want to believe that that's, um, uh, I, look, I think that's a very, very fine line to 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 navigate as a as a, as a defense attorney as well. well I'm a, I'm a former attorney, and right. uh, and and a former general counsel to closely held companies, and I was always clear with my my clients that 
basically they're the gas and I'm the brakes. The, the, uh, they call me up to hear the no, to hear what, what the problems are going to be or what not to do, but I don't make business decisions. You have to make the business decisions. I just have to point out what the pitfalls are or what the, or, or what the potential issues are. Yeah. No, that's right. All right. So uh, please continue. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I, I think we were talking about the cooperation process. Yes. And what I was describing was, you know, what begins as a series of interviews with the government, I think quickly becomes into a series of interviews about giving them leverage. And then at that point, you're sort of beyond the point of no return. Mm -hmm. um, they have you. And uh, the conversation then changes from um, everybody who has cooperation, everybody who's coming to speak with us, n none of them have gone to prison, into now you have cooperation. You've got to actually give us something. But in my case, and I think it was something that became readily apparent to them, they had hoped that I would have all of this uh, incriminating evidence about Steve Cohen or about SAC Capital. And we can talk about it um, um, later, which is, you know, what do I think people misunderstand about SAC Capital and, and the series of insider trading cases, but I didn't have anything to give them. I had very, very little to give them. And it was impressed upon me, you need to try to think of something, you need to try to come up with things that mm. are going to please them. And uh, I racked my brain. And ultimately, you know, I, uh, there was a, a competitor for um, a job at SAC Capital when I was hired, who badmouthed myself and a colleague. Uh, I told them about that. And a number of these stories, which I had provided to them, were then taken out of context and used not only in the criminal indictment against SAC Capital, but ultimately against me. So, um, you know, it's a very interesting process that cooperation began in a certain way and it ended up being something completely different. One thing I will say is that, you know, at the end of the day, when I ultimately pled guilty, you know, the inducement to plead guilty was really, we are giving you cooperation. And that's a formal legal uh, uh, issue. The, the government will write what is called something, it's called a 5K1.1 letter, which yes. is mm -hmm. um, a downward departure from sentencing guidelines such that the judge, it's, it's a signal to the judge um, to, not, to mm -hmm. not give uh, prison to, uh, to such a person. And uh, I think something to, to note is, you know, the government would like to frame cooperation as somebody throwing themselves at their mercy. Here, I'm trying to help you and, and, and please, please show leniency on me. Write this letter for me. But that wasn't my experience at all, right? My experience was plead guilty and we, as an inducement to do so, we will give you this cooperation agreement. Substantively, cooperation typically means things like wiretapping others, testifying against others. But none of that happened in my case. I, um, I'm too much of a nervous Nelly. There was nobody to actually wiretap. And um, I think that they understood substantively that that 5K1 would not contain material assistance because I had none to give. So um, I just think that that's a dynamic about the cooperation and about the 5K1 that is sort of important to understand. It can be used and it can be framed as, you know, somebody came in and tried to help the government and did things like wiretap others, et cetera. And really, you know, uh, threw themselves at the mercy of government to give them leniency. Uh, but at the same time, it can be, you're so scared of uh, being indicted 
come and plead guilty. And in exchange, we'll give you this cooperation agreement. And that, that latter was, candidly, was my experience. So, um, um, and I think ultimately, you know, had I not had that, I would not have pled guilty. Um, but ultimately, that was uh, what my attorneys deemed was uh, the best option for me. And I want to say around July 21st or July 22nd of that year, you know, I, 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 I pled guilty. So what was the case itself that they actually brought against you or that you, that they, that they told you that they were going to bring against you? And then how did that wind up springing into the actual case and the actual, and the actual uh, guilty plea? Absolutely. I, I, the case was uh, effectively the tape and the tape was myself having a conversation with a Southside analyst, which analyzed solely by itself doesn't look great, right? It, He's talking about a friend of his at Microsoft who is uh, saying that they're seeing people from Yahoo on campus and that, you know, it was his feeling that uh, a partnership announcement, which had been widely speculated for one and a half years prior to that date, because Microsoft at one point had made an offer to purchase Yahoo, that, that, some, that a partnership announcement was imminent and might happen in, in two weeks. And in fact, it did happen and it was announced in two weeks. And the sequence of events on their face would look, um, don't look great. Uh, it was not something that I had remembered. And my attorneys felt that the case, uh, the tape would be, quote unquote, hard to beat in a trial. Uh, my feeling at that time was, this is a Southside analyst. And it was, in fact, the first time I had ever spoken to him, right? So this was not some special favor that he was giving to a friend of his or a long-term client. It was something that I had felt that he was telling everyone and that that rendered it public information. And again, you know, it wasn't a call at 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. In, in the morning that it was uh, I was, you know, last in the long line of clients with whom he probably had a better relationship with versus somebody I'd never spoken to before. And, and, and that and that was his job to speak to people like you all day long. Right. That's right. So. Um, you know, and that was, that was the constant protest that I had made, you know, to my defense attorneys. Um, in fact, that at a prior employer, we had had specific compliance training that would suggest that uh, I believed that, that this was a permissible conversation. But for whatever reason, there was no interest in actually going back to the former employer to try to pull up the compliance training notes. Uh, I, 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 I think just terrified. Uh, I, I was terrified of being arrested publicly and having a perp walk. Sure. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I just couldn't imagine and couldn't bear the idea of my parents seeing that. Mm -hmm. And that loomed very large in my head. So, um, you know, at the time that I pled, you know, I, you know, we were, and my attorneys believed that um, um, it would be quiet and that this was the best way to sort of, quote unquote, save face with respect to what was happening. That pleading guilty was infinitely preferable to a public arrest. Um, and that was sort of how I calculated it in my mind. So, so two things. Um, a, a lot of, uh, especially academics and researchers, when they're talking to me, they, they, what they want to know is, what are the um, sociological precipitating factors that go into um, people committing white-collar crime? And I, 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 I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to jump ahead here. But you mentioned your parents, and and I know that you had a specific background being a Korean American, and um, so why don't you talk about that a little bit, 
and then um and then i i, I want to move from there to um the research that was or wasn't done into the activity that was surrounding uh the day in question and oh, right so sure. um um, because I think that's a very important part of the uh, of the story. So wh- wh- why don't we get, why don't we cover those two bases? Sure, absolutely. So you know, look, I, I, if people ask me, I, I consider myself thoroughly um, thoroughly sort of quote unquote American. I was born and raised in the western suburbs of Chicago, um, but I do have very traditional uh, Korean immigrant parents who you know they met while they were both pursuing their doctorates here in. Uh, I think at Northern Illinois University, and um, and they were academics, right? So growing up, I had academic parents, and they stressed this uh, for myself and, and for my older brother. The reality is, you know, there's a lot of um, aspects of Korean culture that are part of me, which is, you know, um, I uh, I don't seek to put myself out there necessarily. I I uh, and I think that's sort of an Asian American trait. Um, I pride myself on work. I pride myself on on achievement and education. I think that there is uh, certainly a stereotype of people who work on Wall Street um, as these models and bottles, you know, money flashing type guys. And uh, actually, you know, my parents are very buttoned down folks, um, and I consider myself as such. I, I believe I went and worked on Wall Street solely out of a sense of achievement. Um, and had I worked in a different field, I would have measured that achievement differently. Uh, but with respect to pleading guilty, you know, I never told my parents about the case until the day or the two days before I went to plead guilty. And that was a mistake. One, um, it's understandable. One doesn't want to worry their parents. Two, I wasn't sure of how it would ultimately turn out. And three, there was this sense of shame uh, that I wanted to really avoid. Um, And so uh, the decision to plead guilty, I can't stress enough, again, is uh, in my mind, I felt that what I thought would have been a quiet guilty plea was preferable to a public arrest. And that is something which is completely incorrect, and yet somehow was a notion that was very much in my mind at the time. It's, it's hard not to jump ahead to the lessons learned part of this too much, but w- one of the things that you and I discussed early on and w- wound up being a theme that we kept coming back to was... Um, how much of a defense budget should actually be spent on forensics, should be spent on uncovering the actual facts themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly you know that my position is, is that, um, mm-hmm. is that um, lawyers, um, like any other business people, uh, you know, they, they, they take a good chunk of the defense budget, but... Um, before you go in and speak to the government, um, it certainly would be helpful to know what um, what evidence there is and what the context is. And and so, tell me what happened there, uh-huh. and and how um, you might have done things differently. Again, we don't have to jump to the last section first, really, lessons learned right. section, but ultimately. Um, your case is, is very well known, Richard. So there were facts that didn't come to light in your case for years. Had right. you had you known in advance, would it uh, would have led you to make a very different decision? Yes, that's right. 
Uh, and thank you for mentioning that because I, I had forgotten to mention it. The, the most important, you know, when, when you work uh, at an investment firm, right, you have instant messages with traders and with other members of your team. You have emails. Um, um, and these are, you know, critically important business records um, um, that you should have a chance to review before you decide to plead guilty to something that you feel that you didn't do. In my case, uh, we never had access, the government either, to my emails or to my instant messages that would have, um, where I might have been talking about this call I had with the sell side analyst or where I might have been giving trade orders and instructions to our trader. And, you know, in hindsight, that's ludicrous. How could you plead guilty without having some of the primary facts that you need in order to ascertain whether you actually are culpable or not? Yet in my case, the most important thing was, and I believe that this was probably driven by um, the way that the, the theatrics of how the government wanted to proceed, they did not want to subpoena my, my records from SAC because they were concerned that if they subpoenaed them, SAC would know that I was a target and would reach out to me. Simultaneously, they told me, you cannot approach SAC for help. So, um, and this is something that I deeply regret. Uh, I funded the attorneys out of my own pocket, which, um, look, you know, candidly, if you have a corporate budget to spend, spend on defense, um, you're much less parsimonious with respect to the things that, um, you know, to the activities that you're undergoing. Although at my point, at my time, you know, pretty much the lawyers were driving the bus. And I, I asked no questions with respect to what they decided to, to, spend, to, to spend time on. Um, and so, you know, that, that very much affected the outcome. The inability to talk to SAC meant that uh, I wouldn't have advantage of uh, SAC potentially indemnifying me. And most importantly, I didn't have access to the primary details. So, um, you know, it's something obviously that it was a, it was a major mistake made in hindsight. Um, uh, you know, I obviously had provisional discussions with my attorneys about, you know, what uh, a defense might cost, but those ranges were so wide that, um, and I think realistically, when somebody is put in this type of situation, they are vastly deprioritizing the legal budget um, because they're just concerned about what's going to happen. And uh, that was certainly um, that was certainly my mindset at the time. Things uh, obviously changed uh, many years later when I when I uh, sought uh, a second opinion on, on what had what had occurred. So you're a trader um, by a profession, and you're used to doing research, looking at source documents, yes. um, um, sorting through them, trying to find um, details that other people might not. Um, might not see, right. but you're in massive trauma at the time. Do you think that there's a part of you that adopted the government story that they told you something happened and that shaded the way your thinking was about it? And so you felt a sense of guilt that, um, and, and coerced guilt. And, and therefore, it, um, it may have made you less, um, uh, l less interested, not interested is the wrong word, probably, but um, l um, not um, when your attorneys didn't want or didn't suggest reviewing those source documents prior to you um, uh, um, doing your proffers or, or, or uh, prior to pleading. 
um, it didn't kind of go off as a as a as an alarm bell. Something's wrong here. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, I have had an additional an, an initial view, which is very easy to assert at this point. Which you know, the, I thought that that was a permissive, permissive, permissible conversation. But um, the tape itself, which was um, you know taken out of context, um, um, was something that my my lawyers felt uh, was black and white, and this. Uh, constant sort of, I want to say, I don't want to say combative, but this constant uh, friction back and forth regarding this made me question, maybe my entire moral compass is just miscalibrated. And all of these things that I thought uh, uh, were okay and legal and legitimate actually are not. And in fact, maybe, you know, I just need to surrender my sense as to what was right and wrong and my mens rea or state of mind to, um, uh, you know, what my attorneys and the prosecutors are saying. And I actually, you know, um, there's a lot of details that um, I, I could probably mention with respect to that, but that was absolutely an element of what occurred. Uh, and I th certainly believe that's one of the reasons why my wife also uh, felt that there was no choice but to, but to plead. Uh, that maybe I was just in a different universe and these things that I had thought were completely okay, I was just wrong about. So are are, are we jumping now to the fact that you've now pled mm -hmm. and you have remorse, you have regret almost immediately. Uh, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, if we want to talk about, let's say the, the fallout from what occurred, mm -hmm. you know, it was uh, exactly the opposite of what um, my attorneys and I originally had thought. Uh, it wasn't a quiet guilty plea. It was, um, uh, there was a media blitz about it. Uh, there were a number of articles that appeared in all the major newspapers about it. And um, um, I immediately uh, realized I had made a, a tragic mistake. You know, one of the things that I was uh, particularly upset about what, what, was that there was a, you know, I discussed, I mentioned briefly that the circumstances where I was hired by Steve Cohen, where uh, a former colleague of mine from a former employer uh, really resorted to sort of slander and rumors uh, in order to try to get hired himself instead of myself and a colleague of mine. And, um, uh, and in sort of the media blitz following my guilty plea, I think the former employer wanted to distance itself as much as possible from, um, uh, from what had occurred and, and, you know, would feed stories to the media that were factually untrue. Um, you know, in many respects, some of those stories, and I still believe this, and I asserted it at the time, were much worse than the insider trading plea because it suggested um, a, type, a type of impropriety that, at least from my sense and my sense of morals, is actually, you know, really bad. So um, it was just terrible. And the reality was, um, as much as I wanted to, quote unquote, fight back or even have discussions with these journalists before the articles were published, my attorneys told me, you can't. You can't do this because you're now under a cooperation from the government and anything you try to do to uh, correct something that looks bad about you or um, fix anything uh, will be seen as antagonistic by the government because they want you to look as slimy as possible uh, to enhance their own case against SAC. So it was a kind of terrible sense of helplessness and despair that, that I was overcome with. I, I really can't stress that enough. I, um, you know, I want to say probably within one or two months after entering the guilty plea, I went back to New York to uh, 
discussed potentially uh, withdrawing my guilty plea. And I met with another attorney and she was a former prosecutor as well. She was very impressive. She said, I mean, the first thing she said to me was, it's, it's a shame you didn't come here because we don't plead our clients. But the most important thing she said, and I think what, um, you know, uh, sort of, I want to say, was reflective of the kind of cynicism I mentioned that prosecutors might have. Mm-hmm. She said to me, look, I, I understand that you feel that your plea was coerced, that you're uh, actually innocent. And uh, some of the facts that you're presenting to me, uh, I can understand exactly why, and maybe you are. But the reality is some of these things that you're complaining about with respect to a coerced plea uh, uh, um, lies through omission um, uh, by the government. Um, you know, these things you may be surprised by, but I am not. When I was a prosecutor, I did these types of things. This is just what happens. Most people don't understand that. You know, and with that, you know, my head hanging low, I left her office um, and returned home feeling that there was nothing I could do. And gosh, you know, I just have to live with this terrible mistake that I had made. So, um, you know, that, that, that's about the time you called me. That's, uh, it's actually precedes, precedes when, uh, when I called you. Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember actually when I called you because I was uh, using a rented Regis office here in River North in Chicago. And um, I believe that there were continuing CNBC stories about uh, SAC around the time that SAC itself had pled, which was, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of months later. But, you know, I turned off the lights in the room. I was uh, feeling lost. I, I didn't know who to talk with. And there was an article um, that was about you. I think it was an institutional investor magazine. Um, I think um, Absolute Return Hedge Fund. Uh, um, I can't remember the name of the magazine. Absolute Return. Okay, got it. And, uh, and I just, you know, again, you know, in the same way I Googled and found my original attorneys, I Googled you and I found you. And you replied, I, I believe, you know, really fast, within a half an hour. And we had our first conversation at that point. And, you know, your... Um, friendship and sort of shepherding me through the subsequent years. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, uh, withdrawing my plea at a later date and, and preparing for what seemed to be trial at the time was just invaluable in terms of keeping my head on straight because, you know, the subsequent seven years, um, you know, were just, was just an emotional roller coaster with respect to the possibilities, what I should do, uh, a number of friends and family just asking me to move on and move on. And, and, you know, this happened and you need to just move on with your life. So, um, yeah, it's around that time that, that we, we met. Uh, it was around that time that I was actively exploring, you know, whether I could withdraw my plea. Right. And, um, and it seemed like there was nothing that could be done. Well, one of the things we talked about once, once we kind of got you back on your feet, because you were in pretty rough shape at that point. Sure. Yeah. Um, but once we got you back on your feet, was that the, the government and the media's perception of SEC Capital and Steve Cohen and their compliance was really all wrong? Um, you know, that's, I, I think that's, uh, when we talk about uh, what I think people misunderstand about SAC, that's certainly one of them. Um, and... Um, Maybe, maybe um, I don't know if you want to jump into that section now. We, we, can, we can certainly do so. Sure. Okay, great. L- look, I, I, you know, there were, there's a number of books that have been written about this. Um, there's a number of books that have been written about uh, SAC, 
Uh, I had a former colleague named Matthew Martoma, who was uh, uh, indicted, taken to trial, and, and found guilty in what uh, is called the largest insider trade in history, I think $276 million. Um, and um, even I've taken part in some business school interviews where you know their their uh, subject reading matter is uh, a book that was written about Matthew Martoma and SAC Capital, and it's called it's called Black Edge. You know, my my feeling uh, very much is that um, that book is entirely wrong, and uh, I can um, maybe I can start and I can talk a little bit uh, in terms of a retrospective about my time in the hedge fund industry. Sure. When I started in the hedge fund industry in about 2002 and 2003, you know, I was a research analyst at uh, a very large and well-respected firm back then, and, and it's still, still to this day. And um, at that time, you know, nobody knew what a hedge fund was. Mm -hmm. uh, it was preceding uh, a time of explosive growth and interest in hedge funds, which occurred in 2005. I joined as a research analyst. Uh, I built financial models. I interviewed. I did, you know, channel checks and research. Um, and at that time, um, there was a a company called Gerson Learman Group that was uh, offering um, connecting experts or insiders at companies with hedge funds that wanted to learn about those companies. And we utilized uh, Gerson Learman Group or GLG extensively to try to learn about the unit economics of semiconductors. NAND, Flash, uh, and a number of other industries. Uh, um, you know, at this time, um, uh, I think um, people knew very clearly what was inappropriate information, right? Information that you get from a lawyer, information that you get from a banker, this is wrong. And I think that uh, everybody understood that. Um, when you're starting to talk about company insiders who have visibility into trends that um, the ordinary public might not have access to. This is starting to get into a gray area. And um, it was a practice that we actually were very proud of. Sorry, when I say the uh, practice, we used a job research site at that time called monster.com to find people uh, inside companies. Um, and again, this was not to seek inappropriate information. It was to get um, employees' perspectives of the management team. Were they ethical? Were they uh, conscientious? Were they um, penny pinchers with respect to the way they thought about growth? And we would use this extensively, uh, and we thought that it was brilliant research. We thought we were on the cutting edge with respect to the way that we were able to get insights into people and companies and understand how the businesses worked better than the next guy. Gerson Ehrman Group took it to the next level, and I remember very clearly uh, when I was at this firm, I had an uh, interview with a company insider at an electronics distributor. And I always ended my interviews, you know, is there anything I haven't asked you about that others have or things that, you know, we should know about? And he said to me, you know, many people ask me what our quarterly earnings are going to be next quarter, but I don't uh, typically get those until about a week beforehand. So why don't you give me a call back uh, a week beforehand and we can set up another paid interview and, um, and I'll tell you. And, you know, at this point, that's clearly wrong. And I immediately called our compliance department. Wait, who, just, just to be clear, this was an, an affirm that you were at prior to SAC Capital. Prior to SAC. Okay. Um, I, I like to cite this example because this conversation um, caused uh, our compliance to be extremely upset. They called uh, 
the expert network firm, Gerson Lehrman Group, and they instituted uh, a change which impacted all of their clients, which was that compliance would be aware of and emailed simultaneously when all of these interviews were being set up so that their compliance could nix the interview if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. The only reason I describe this is because I want to describe the atmosphere of hedge funds at that time in terms of what was considered novel research and what was actually looked favorably upon as good research. Um, I then moved on to a, another firm in the 2007 to 2008 period. And at this point, you know, the hedge fund industry has exploded in size. And uh, a common practice at that firm was to actually talk with investment bankers about trends that they see in M&A. And look, you know, I was never part of a discussion which crossed the lines uh, at, at all. But, um, you know, that's a very, very, uh, this type of conversation does not happen today. Sure. And uh, because of the size and influence of the firm that I was at, you know, we felt, gosh, you know, this is how we're getting uh, better insights than the next guy because we are so large that uh, investment banks and brokerages are willing to set up calls with their bankers to give us um, uh, a better understanding about what the M&A landscape looks like or what the vestitures look like or, or what management teams are thinking about because, you know, M&A happens in waves you know, one deal goes off and then management teams all begin to think that they have to do a deal, et cetera. Sure. They can give us insight into how uh, management teams are thinking as a whole. Okay, now we fast forward to SAC, right? So we have the backdrop of the expert network uh, phenomena, which began uh, when I started in the industry. We have conversations with investment bankers that were practices at prior firms that I worked at. And when I entered SAC, one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, SAC had such great performance over the preceding two decades, everybody um, felt, and I think this is natural in a a space where alpha is a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. Alpha means sort of outperformance over the index. It's not like technology innovation or startups where it's a rising tide that can lift all boats. In, In the hedge fund space, if you're doing well in terms of alpha, by definition, that means somebody else is underperforming. And that I want to say infects the mindset of how people think about competitors greatly. A lot of people felt that maybe there's something untoward happening at SAC because his numbers are so great. Uh, And obviously I can't speak to or speculate uh, about that at all, right? Because it precedes the time that I was there. But when I joined their compliance team and their compliance department was uh, exponentially tighter than any of the other firms I had worked at. Uh, Certainly, we could not speak to company insiders. Certainly, speaking to uh, investment bankers was out of the question. And moreover, you know, there was an active surveillance of uh, emails and IMs, an active surveillance of, um, uh, you know, the investment portfolio, trying to understand, you know, um, uh, you know, if a company in a portfolio, you know, was acquired or there was any large one-day change, you know, a postmortem in terms of understanding what had happened and what did you know? So, uh, you know, from that perspective, you know, was it overcompensation because uh, SAC uh, was trying to correct for uh, either, uh, you know, what I would consider an unwarranted perception in industry? Maybe. But, you know, when we get to the point where SAC itself is being prosecuted and look, a lot of good people um, lost their jobs uh, in the prosecution and indictment and guilty plea of SAC Capital. I, I, I firmly believe a lot of that is unwarranted because the practices at SAC were 
at another level relative to some of the other very large and prestigious firms I had worked at um, uh, at that time. And I'm sure what has happened you know, subsequent to that is that every firm on Wall Street has changed their practices in terms of what is permissible. I certainly don't think that those things are happening today. But um, I just feel that when people want to flag and target SAC as a firm that was a bad actor in the space, where a, a number, oh, a, a term that Preparara used was a, mag, a, a magnet for market cheaters. I mean, my experience was the exact opposite. It was uh, a decentralized firm where the necessity of having a, a diligent and vigilant compliance uh, was absolutely necessary, and, and they did a good job of it. So, so, so Richard, so, so this is like a Peter Drucker culture view where you're, you're a button-down guy, that's a button-down firm, and the culture there at the time you're there is is uh, um, compliance heavy, very buttoned down, even if in some people's mind, it's cowboys and Indians, but that's not what your experience was. And so you must have been very comfortable given your, um, your background and your need for that kind of structure. You were that kind of guy. Um, I'm sorry, the, the video froze for a second. Um, yeah, I mean, look, you know, the the value proposition that SAC offered to people when they were bringing them on board was, you are effectively running your own firm within our firm. Mm -hmm. um, you have the infrastructure of the compliance and the back office that we can offer you, but we give you basically the freedom and flexibility with respect to to practice your investment philosophy and your strategy the way that you want to without the hassle of running the actual business in the background from the back office, the marketing, mm -hmm. uh, the compliance, and so on and so forth. So from that perspective, uh, it was ex that was the, the, the value proposition that Steve offered. And that's how he would try to attract people uh, who were considering setting up their own firm or going to work for him. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with, um, in my opinion, with <laughs> attracting people who you know, were playing close to the line at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I... I, I firmly believe that that was sort of a fiction that was invented. I mean, it was a necessary invention to try to indict the firm. Um, yeah. So, so now we're in the, we're in the um, seven years that you're in the wilderness. Well, you know, actually, before we jump to that, um, if we're going to talk about, you know, um, things that I think people misunderstand about the, the firm SAC Capital. Yeah. I, I would also like to talk a little bit about what I, what I believe people misunderstand about the insider trading prosecutions overall. That's great. Which mm -hmm. is, you know, an important, important topic. You know, coming out of the financial crisis, there was a lot of, um, uh, I want to say there was a public need for retribution, um, uh, a desire to see some type of uh, uh, rights to correct the wrongs that people feel intuitively must have been committed. The financial crisis was terrible. Uh, you had Occupy Wall Street, which came up in the year in the years uh, following the financial crisis. I actually, you, you know, went down to <laughs> not participate necessarily, but to observe because I was so. Um, and there were elements of that that I actually completely sympathized with. To be to be to be totally honest, the um, you know what had happened was was that there were two phases in my mind with respect to the insider trading prosecutions, and this is something that um, 
folks who are actually studying it should probably try to understand. The first is that there was a wave of prosecutions linked to that Wall Street Journal article in the fall of 2009, which uh, were Rajajaratnam at the Galleon Group, Rajat Gupta, the former CEO of McKinsey, um, a, a gentleman named Zvi Goffer. And these were insider trading cases that were more or less black and white, open and shut cases. Lawyers were being paid off. People, company insiders were being paid off. And there was money exchanging hands. Um, these cases uh, were all initiated under Preet Bharara's predecessor in the SDNY, uh, former U.S. Attorney Garcia, who was at the tail end of the George W. Bush administration. Those investigations were initiated, and in some respects, uh, and this is my phrasing, you know, were handed to Bharara on a silver platter um, at the time that he began his tenure as U.S. Attorney. Sure. Those prosecutions, um, um, you know, were not, I, don't, I don't believe they were, they were overturned. Um, they were pretty clear, clear cut, and they most importantly won Preet Bharara uh, a lot of media attention. I think he was uh, put on the cover of a magazine, this man is cracking down on Wall Street. And there was a sense in some respects, oh, we're finally getting retribution for the financial crisis because here are these financial actors that Bharara is, is jailing. In reality, the financial crisis was caused by mortgage fraud, which was being propagated along a chain from inception to packaging to distribution to investors. Insider trading had almost nothing to do with it. But uh, it's my belief that Preet Bharara felt, gosh, you know, I'm getting so much media acclaim from this, um, and people think that I'm doing something about Wall Street, let's have more of it. And at that point, a number of uh, cases were initiated and brought. Uh, many of which, and I think, uh, gosh, if you had to take a look at the second half, uh, a large percentage were, were overturned, uh, including um, Chiesan and, and uh, Newman, mm -hmm. which you know, became a major case, which is clarified insider trading law. Sure. Michael Steinberg, a former colleague of mine, mm -hmm. uh, my case, and, and a number of others. Mm -hmm. So you know, what I think people misunderstand about this time in history is that, um, one, the insider trading cases were brought in some respects to try to satiate the public's need for um, some sense of corrective action following the financial crisis. But in reality, no corrective action was ever taken. And you know, this is purely from my knowledge of some people who worked in subprime mortgage packaging. I don't even think they necessarily looked, right? You have a banker who is soliciting mortgages that he knows to be fraudulent and then he packages them up securitizes them and slices and dices and sells them to investors knowing this i i actually happen to know some of these individuals and they've gone on to uh they actually went on to firms that invested in the the, the fallout from the financial crisis and, and yeah. did very well themselves mm -hmm. but the reality is um I, I think one um the good cases in insider trading were were actually initiated by by his predecessor the bad cases were ones that he, he started himself. And I think more, moreover, nothing was actually done to address the root causes of the financial crisis, which you know, arguably lays a foundation for um, something worse coming down the line. Yeah. Nobody can, can, can know with respect to that. And I just think that's something that I think is important to realize. But, but, there, but there was also a perception that the insider trading cases were low-hanging fruit easy to prosecute. And that 
might have been true in the beginning, but we know that later on, the cases were much more nuanced. There was a lot more going on there than the early, uh, in those early cases. And um, you lived through a lot of that, of, of that, um, of that change. Uh-huh, that's right. I, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, it was such a roller coaster following the guilty plea is that I, I believe in, in, in the fall of that year, um, the new, uh, the Newman Chiasen case was overturned by the Court of Appeals, right. um, demanding that there was um, a, a requirement which was proving personal benefit, mm-hmm. which uh, had not been provided by the government in those cases. And um, you know that began basically uh, a sort of a kickball back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, where um, uh, the U.S. Attorney Pre Preparara then yeah, filed for an appeal mm-hmm. on that case uh, and filed for cert actually to the Supreme Court on that case. Um, and the fallout from that case, which clarified the laws of insider trading, not only overturned a number of guilty pleas that they had procured, but just changed the overall landscape for prosecutions and added an element of the of, added an, another element of proof that the prosecutors needed. Uh, in my case, um, this uh, accrued to my benefit because all of these Newman and Chiasen provisions applied to my case. And uh, I want to say a couple of years following the, following the guilty plea, a number of attorneys, defense attorneys that I had spoken with were advising me urgently to try to withdraw my plea, citing Newman and Chiesa as the reason for doing so. Um, but I was very reluctant to do so because I uh, wanted to make an assertion for my innocence that I was thoroughly innocent, that uh, I never felt that what I was doing was, was inappropriate. And that was the struggle that I'd had with defense attorneys uh, back and forth regarding that. I, I ultimately switched attorneys from um, my prior attorneys to uh, uh, an attorney named Greg Morvillo, who is um, in some respects my savior because one, he was receptive to taking um, a case that was very challenging uh, because of the, the guilty plea. Um, and two, you know, he crafted an argument uh, that was predicated both on the Newman and Chiesan um, decision, decision, which was there was an absence of personal benefit in my case, but also, you know, as we went through the process, he crafted an argument which um, asserted that I was factually innocent. And that gets to sort of the evidentiary standpoint, which we discovered in 2017, which I can uh, get to if now's the right time. Oh, yeah, I think, I think it is, except that when you went to, because um you and i spoke a lot of that um around that time uh greg morvillo came onto your radar because he had had some success at that point that's right greg greg morvillo is an attorney that i would not have, have considered uh, under the prior notions that i had had when i was first searching for an attorney mm-hmm. in 2013 mm-hmm. because somehow somebody told me that i needed an attorney who was a former prosecutor Greg, Mar- Greg Morvillo himself was never a former prosecutor. He has uh, uh, been a practicing criminal defense attorney his entire life. And um, that, accrues to, that accrued to my benefit because I think he was actually willing to understand and listen to the story with his experience, but without the taint of a kind of cynicism, I think, that develops over time from a prosecutor's perspective that everyone is guilty and they're just either delusional or hiding something. So... Um, when I first met with Greg, it was to get a second opinion on my case 
solely with respect to Newman and Chieson. And he felt strongly that I could make uh, a motion to withdraw my, my plea based on that. But some time had passed and then, you know, there were a number of other court cases, one called Salman that came before the government. And uh, it, clar it further clarified Newman and Chieson to an ambiguous benefit for myself. And here's the calculus that we had to really consider. Uh, I was owed a cooperation agreement by the government. Uh, most certainly, you know, when I went to sentencing, it was very likely that uh, I wouldn't go to, to I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have prison time, but I would have a felony and I would have to live with, uh, you know, the consequences of my decisions for the rest of my life. Um, if I made a motion to try to withdraw the plea, I would blow up the cooperation agreement. Yes. So even if the judge decided, uh, I'm not going to vacate your plea, um, I would not have the benefit of the cooperation agreement at the time of sentencing, and I would likely go away for some period of time. That's a very difficult decision to make, sure. and that's uh, something uh, my wife and I struggled with greatly. I think she would have been, um, she would have preferred at that time for me to just go to sentencing, get the cooperation agreement, and move on with our lives. Mm. I couldn't really bear that. And, and certainly at the time, you understood that the passage of time, the lengthy passage of time, was not to your advantage in trying to withdraw a plea. Correct. Uh, the, um, and um, I know that weighed heavily um, in terms of the likelihood of the judge even entertaining whether or not you could withdraw your plea. That's exactly right. Um, most, um, I think most uh, people familiar with criminal defense law understand that it's almost impossible to get your uh, to withdraw a plea from a judge because there's a sense of finality with respect to a guilty plea. It's almost impossible to do so. Mm -hmm. And we, we concluded that um, it would be difficult as well. And facing the consequence of losing the cooperation agreement and being sentenced to prison, because that was the most likely, in fact, the uh, you know, 90% plus chance, most likely outcome, we decided, look, you know, uh, it's just best to just get this behind you. So we agreed to go to sentencing at the beginning of 2017 mm -hmm. upon advice of, of, of Morvillo and working through the permutation and the potential bad outcomes, we agreed to go to sentencing. And as a part of that, we needed to finally get data, data about when the trades had been entered with uh, relative to the time of the conversation I had with this Southside analyst. And in the process of collecting that data, we discovered that I put in the trades, in fact, 97% of the trades before I even spoke to the Southside analyst. All right, so, so, so let's be clear about what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> so, um, one, this data was available the entire time. Whether or not you had access is another story, but it was the, this is the source data. This is the raw data. Yes. And two, you had been told a different story by the government uh, as to the timing of this, of, of what happened. Yes, that's right. So uh, I cannot assert that the government deceived me because I, I don't believe that the government deceived me. The government just made an assumption, which was incorrect. I believe that the government had the date of the conversation I had with this analyst, and they had the number of shares that were traded on that date. 
And they assumed that I made those trades after I spoke to him. In reality, I'd been trading all that week. And as we later come to realize, I actually traded before I spoke to him, which cannot be insider trading because that's not how insider trading works. So, um, you know, it's a bit shocking. You know, look, after we found out this information, I went to my mother and I explained this to her and she just had this stupefied look and you didn't know this when you pled, you know, type of look like your, your mother, your, your mother, who's an immigration attorney, by the way. So let's just be, be clear. It was just not criminal. Sorry. She's an immigration attorney, but she's not a criminal defense attorney, exactly. but she's, you know, she, you know, she's a, she's an academic and she can do logic. <laughs> and, and what, I mean, she was just stupefied and, and honestly, it's, it's absurd that I, didn't know this at the time that I had fled. So, you know, we got a couple of pieces of information from the government at the time and, and which were that I traded before I even spoke to the guy. And, and that's sort of, you can't commit insider trading if that's the case. And um, when we approached the government, you know, their, their, their stance was, I think one, maybe understandable from a prosecutor's perspective, which is the, the guy pled, you know, like what, what do you expect us to do? Sure. Right. And 3% of the trades, uh, were entered after he spoke to the guy, right? So, uh, uh, you know, arguably that's still insider trading. And we said, come on, guys, like this is, he obviously didn't make anything of this conversation. If he thought it was pertinent, you know, this, this just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit any normal sense of insider trading theory whatsoever. But it was a high profile case. It was linked to SAC. I think much of the office's uh, sense of pride and, and uh, even institutional ego was wrapped up in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were going to fight every, every, every step of the way. And at that point, uh, you know, we said, look, you know, I, 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 I said to Greg Morvillo and, and he agreed, you know, I can't, in, you know, in good conscience, go to sentencing at this point, knowing that factually we have data that shows that uh, I traded before I even spoke to the guy. Uh, on top of that, I never thought I was doing anything wrong to begin with. Um, and we crafted a motion to withdraw the plea which was two part. One was on Numina Chiesa, the absence of personal benefit. And the second was that I was actually factually innocent upon, uh, upon this new evidence. And uh, we did that knowing that the cooperation agreement would likely be blown up. And should I fail, you know, I would be going to prison. Um, You'd have uh, what, is, what is commonly called a trial penalty. If you went to trial, you would be sentenced to a uh, much uh, 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 much longer prison sentence than had you cooperated or had you pled. Correct. And, and moreover, actually, not just the trial penalty, but there was a sense that the prosecutors could try to punish me above and beyond that. Right. Because from their perspective, they would say, how dare this guy that we gave this cooperation agreement to, again, their perspective that we are showing mercy and leniency to, try to withdraw his plea. We need to make an example of him. And there was that element of as well, which we could not quantify, which loomed large. You know, should I be unsuccessful? It's not just the trial penalty, but the desire for vengeance in a sense from the prosecutor's office that could make my situation that much worse. So, so when did you make the motion to withdraw? How long did it take to get resolution or disposition of that motion? And what was going on in between? Um, I know the answers to these questions already. 
but <laughs> but um, you didn't know whether or not you were going to get a motion decision. You were going to get sentenced. You didn't know if the judge was going to uh, rule on the motion at the sentencing. Um, a lot of there there were there were actual. Um, times when you thought you were going to have to come to New York to get sentenced, but it got delayed. Why don't you just kind of, why don't you just describe all that? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, upon discovery of the new evidence, we moved super fast. Uh, Greg Morvillo, uh, and uh, to his credit, felt that, you know, it had been four years since I had pled. And uh, if we are going to make an assertion that new evidence was factually proving my innocence, we have to move very, very quickly. So uh, within a couple of months, we uh, filed a motion with the court that we were going to withdraw the plea, and we filed the motion to vacate the plea. And the government filed its customary objections. You know, the guy pled, come on, give me a break here. And, um, and then it sat with the judge. And just because of the peculiarities of the judge that I, I had, and I, I want to actually say one of the reasons why we had the conviction to submit the motion was because we drew a judge who was not regarded as being defense friendly at all, but a judge that was uh, widely considered to be a legal nerd, a judge that will write 20 papers, I mean, 20 pages on an opinion when two would suffice. And so I trusted that this judge would seek through, understand the details, and that that would uh, accrue to my benefit. One thing he did was instead of, um, uh, adjourning my sentencing date indefinitely, he just kept on moving it two months at a time right. or three months at a time. And uh, we didn't know how to read into that. Uh, there came a point where we felt that he's going to deny the motion and, you know, uh, we need to prepare for sentencing. And it, it, as you know, it's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot involved in preparing for sentencing. So I went to a number of former colleagues um, to get favorable opinions. Um, I mean, asking if they would write something nice of me, basically, sure. um, that, that might move the judge towards leniency. Mm -hmm. And we went through this entire process. We went through meeting with the probation office uh, to get guidelines in terms of what they would recommend for sentencing term, terms. And then the sentencing got, date got delayed again. And I want to say, you know, it was probably delayed eight, nine times until the summer of 2019, just a little over a year ago, where, you know, abruptly one morning... Um, uh, you know, Greg Morvillo called me and emailed me and he said, look, the judge uh, vacated the plea. It, it was a miracle. It, it was, you know, and uh, it, it was a miracle, but, you know, there was a sense of foreboding, which is okay, now, you know, what comes next, you know, likely, likely a trial. Sure, be, care be, be, be careful what you wish for. Now, now you might have a trial that you're staring at and, uh, and um, you got what you wanted, but things could get bad in a hurry. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the judge, I mean, and just to be clear for folks, the judge vacated the, the plea, not because um, what he said about my assertion of innocence was, this is an argument that um, is, I don't deny, but it doesn't fully prove your innocence. Rather, we are vacating the plea because uh, your plea was insufficient based on the Newman and Chies on the knowledge of personal benefit. Um, I think that's important to note because uh, it speaks to Greg Morvillo's skill. He understood that uh, a two-part uh, two approach would be best versus basically 
screaming, you know, I was always innocent to begin with. Look at this. Uh, you know, it must have been a coerced plea, which candidly is sort of the, the route that I wanted to, to go. So, um, um, you know, I think that speaks to his excellent um, uh, work as an attorney. Uh, after that, you know, the government made every, uh, every uh, motion to, to make it appear as that we were going to, to trial. I went to New York on, on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. um, the government stated that they were ready and prepared for trial. And this is the fascinating uh, period of time for, for me because we are finally getting discovery from the government. We are finally getting emails and instant messages um, relating to that time that the trade took place. Additionally, we're getting uh, transcripts of interviews that they had taken of other people involved, the supposed tipper, the Southside analyst that involved, um, with respect to sort of understanding what, what had happened. And you know, I remember in amazement looking at these, these notes and this data and, and asking Greg, how are we going to go to trial? I mean, how are they going to mount a case? Because everything here um, not only is to our benefit in a soft way, but in a hard way. Every single person here is denying that there was any exchange of inside information that took place. The trades, more of them took place before I even spoke to him than we realized to begin with. We have uh, evidence from seven, eight other people who are receiving the same phone call from him, so, you know, uh, credibly raising the question as to whether the information was already public to begin with. So it was a very strange time. We were preparing for trial. Uh, we were very fearful that the, the, the simple defense of the government or argument the government would make would be, why does somebody plead guilty to something that they didn't do? Which is just, you know, um, but then, you know, miraculously, I want to say, uh, you know, a couple of months later, the government began to approach my attorney and ask, you know, if we were to offer a deferred prosecution agreement, uh, you know, what would your guy say? Uh, and um, we rejected that. We rejected any notion of making any admission. We had, we had not gone this distance to basically have a deferred prosecution where there was an implicit admission of guilt to something that I firmly believe I hadn't done. And I remember even at that point, people, you know, people were like, are you crazy? Like, would you, you know, you're crazy to, to say no to a deferred prosecution agreement. But, um, but we did. And then the government came back and, and, and said, you know, we're willing, we're willing to just uh, uh, enter something called a nolle prosequi, which is uh, Latin for um, uh, dropping the case altogether as if nothing had ever happened. Exactly. And... And, uh, and they did that. And I believe that was the beginning of November about a year ago. Mm -hmm. I, re I, remember when, I remember when you called me <laughs> and, and it hadn't been signed yet. Right, there, right. I, th I think there was a day probably. I think it was one day. And, and you said, this is what happened. And we, of course, we were in shock. Yeah. But it still had to be signed. Yes, that's right. And and so we were sworn, everyone was sworn to secrecy pending, pending the, uh, the execution the next day. And um, that, there was a lot of celebration going on that day, Richard. Yeah, I mean, look, there was a lot of disbelief until it actually was entered. And I yeah. think one of the reasons why, you know, um, was there was just some concern because, because it was such a high profile case, you know, sure. would a conversation happen? You know, are you kidding this? This case related to one of the marquee cases this office has brought. We're just going to walk, uh, and so there was, you know, everyone's breath was held. My attorneys, mine, family, friends, until it actually went through, mm -hmm. and um, and you know that was uh, uh, in many respects, you know, uh, 
I want to say it was a kind of divine intervention mm -hmm. because it had obviously been something I had been dreaming about for many, many years. And it didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted, but at least from uh, a perspective of, and I really do feel this way, that God gave a chance for me to try to fix things as best as I could, but it would not come without faith because there was always a risk that the judge would deny the plea. I would go to sentencing and get incarceration because I had blown up the cooperation agreement. And um, that was always sort of looming in the background. And, uh, and so I really do feel that uh, if there's any act in my, I mean, I, I've lived a very blessed life. I, I fully admit that. But I really feel that that was a kind of divine act. Um, and, 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 and it feels like it was a very anticlimactic moment in a way because it was just like the feather falling on the, on the scale and then nothing. But in truth, there was a lot of wreckage oh, for I you know. and your family. And, and, and so wh wh why, don't, why don't we kind of talk about that a little bit? And then we can talk about some lessons learned. Sure. Because, because I think that, I mean, certainly, uh, for example, on our white collar support group, you became a folk hero overnight. But you were very um, generous with everybody to explain to them how difficult this had been and how now your life, how difficult it is for you to re-engage your life and, and how the opportunities that you had seven years prior, they weren't rushing back at you to, to, to open their arms to you. In fact, you greeted with a lot of caution. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> so um, that's exactly right. Um, it, was a very, it was a very challenging seven years up until uh, the, having the plea vacated by the judge. And one of the reasons why it was so difficult, and I think this is something I cannot stress enough, I never felt like I could really talk about what had occurred uh, in, in those seven years with people because I put on my cynics hat, which is how can I credibly explain to somebody um, um, that I pled to something that I hadn't done? It would just ring false. Mm. It would ring false like there's a scene in the Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne asks another inmate at the Shawshank prison, what'd you do to get in here? And he says... I'm innocent. Lawyer, fuck me. Pardon my language. But um, I, I felt in the back of my mind that that's how I would come across to anybody I tried to explain this to. So um, I didn't really put myself out there in terms of seeking tangible employment opportunities or looking at, at new things to do. I, I was uh, candidly a bit of a hermit, and, and I, I regret that. Um, following the, the vacating of the plea, I, I would say... One, it's still a very hard conversation to have with people about what, what had occurred, because um, when we look at the facts at, at, at what happened, it's still very hard to understand. In fact, I sometimes still look at myself and I don't understand how I could have pled guilty. Um, in many respects, you know, somebody can say, oh, it's very human. You know, you're under a lot of trauma. Think about the emotional duress. 
And at the same time, I know that I'm a logical person, that I try to form a mosaic around facts, and I can't understand why I did that. So, um, um, and the reality is, uh, in terms of tangible opportunities ahead of me, I mean, there is always going to be this smoke or this confusion over what really happened, right? Yeah. And um, I have to be honest, it's not that I have, you know, been um, searching for a lot of opportunities yet. I've, I've started to, and I don't know what those conversations are going to look like. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the white collar support group, which, um, you know, I think of as divided into two, two groups of people, people who are um, in the process of, of going away, in the process of getting sentenced, they're still in the midst of their, their legal case and they're still, you know, suffering from trauma. Uh, their world is spinning around them. And then there are those on the, on the other side, you know, it's a part of their history. Um, it's behind them, but they're still struggling to, to, you know, with reentry or trying to find uh, meaningful work or their relationships or, or so on. And, and in many respects, the world is still spinning around them. Of course. And um, I'm still, I am in that group, you know, it, regardless of, you know, whether I went away or not, or whether I have uh, a felony, which I don't, um, uh, I still have a, that shared experience with folks and um, I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So, Let's let's go to some of the lessons learned here. There are so many lessons uh, on many different aspects of the case. Uh, I I think you know the biggest lesson that I've learned is, you know, I've replayed this in my mind so many times in terms of how this could have ended up differently. And there's a few key things that um, I obviously should have done. The first is. Um, There is a bubble that is formed around you immediately once the investigation occurs because your attorney advises you that you cannot speak about it with anybody other than your wife. And there is a good legal reason uh, for that, which is anybody can get subpoenaed except your wife who is subject to something called spousal privilege. Right. Now, let's think pragmatically. Practically speaking, you know, if I talked about this with my parents, uh, could they have subpoenaed my parents? Maybe. Uh, but they, pro they, they wouldn't have, practically speaking. And I think it's important to seek counsel from people who have your best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. So um, whether it's a therapist or uh, a few trusted friends who are not involved in your case whatsoever um, um, uh, and therefore have nothing helpful to offer the, the government, um, um, parents or, or siblings, I, I just think that's really important to have a right network around you. Uh, uh, if you're religious, a spiritual advisor, somebody that's um, giving you guidance. And one thing I, I will say, and I, I, you know, it's actually important for me to, to mention this. When I had Greg Morvillo as my attorney, he also had an off counsel named Savannah Stevenson, who um, uh, she now is uh, uh, you know, in corporate law, but she was an Episcopal priest. And um, I also had Jeff Grant, who is, you know, a minister. And, um, I really sought to try to make a decision which was based on what I felt was objectively the right thing to do, not just based on sort of schematics and scenario planning in terms of legal outcomes. And, um, you know, that's a really important thing to keep in mind because you don't want to lose sense of who you are. You know, I lost a sense of who I was because I got up in front of a judge and pledged something that I didn't believe I had done. And, um, 
Very much so, right? And I had uh, surrendered myself to the cynicism of the system. Uh, I surrendered myself to the cynicism of you know former prosecutors who, uh, and and really sort of surrendered again. And I said this before: surrendered my agency to my advisors. And the reality is, you can never surrender your agency to your attorneys. So that's that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is, um, you know, you really need to. Uh, do better. I, I, one has to do much better diligence on finding an attorney who is not just attending to the specific criminal case and projecting their own opinions about that, but understands holistically what is somebody going through um, when they go through this process. Because the attorney needs to make sure that the client is in the right state of mind to be able to make decisions appropriately. It, I look. It's really. Um, it's really a shame, Jeff, that you were not an attorney at that time because I, um, look, how did I find an attorney? I just Googled. I Googled articles about people involved in insider trading and I cold called attorneys. The attorney I found at that time, I found off of his profile. I, I got his number off of his profile page on his website. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, I had no way to evaluate, you know, what was happening. But I, I do believe um, that had somebody, you know, said to me, you know, take a step back. Um, what's your state of mind? You know, um, calm down, breathe, make sure you're getting a, a good night's sleep. Um, before sort of the legal machinations, that would have made, you know, a world of difference. Mm -hmm. So um, we know now that the facts would have um, made the case go away from the onset. And um, the decision to not approach SAC, um, was you know a tremendously bad one because how can you plead to a corporate case a securities fraud case without the benefit of even having the primary information i think there's a separate question as to how can the government accept a plea without having the absence of that information either but that's you know a discussion for another time so, so, I, so, um, so i just want to be clear here <laughs> that that one of my my trusted advisors has said to me that the most important decision that you can make in life is who you choose to marry. The second most important um, decision you can make in life is who you choose to be your lawyer if you get indicted. And your case really embodied that because, because, um, and, and again, there's, there's, it's impossible to blame you because you were in trauma at the time. I, I should be blamed for it. I mean, I have to take responsibility for the decision I made. Um, I was not in a good state of mind to pick the attorney. And one thing that I absolutely should have done, I should have brought my wife to New York when I was interviewing with these attorneys to get her sense as to the character of the attorneys and mm. what the selection would have been. There was a very odd thing in my mind in terms of the way I think about what happened. I was feeling, as I mentioned, you know, very bad about myself. Like what, what I had, had I done in a, in a cosmic sense to put me in this situation. Mm -hmm. I must have done, I must have uh, crossed, you know, I must have crossed somebody, you know, did I not, uh, I don't know how to think about it, but, you know, was this... Uh, was it karmic? Was it karmic? Did you get, did you get what you were, did you get what was coming to you right was this a sense of cosmic retribution for what was yeah. occurring and i carried that with me in, uh, to my meetings with attorneys and it certainly influenced 
um, the, uh, uh, the rapport and the relationship I had with those attorneys. I think I wanted somebody to make me feel bad. Mm. I think I wanted somebody who said, I have all the answers. Don't bother. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that was a, that was a, that was a bad mistake. And I'm sure, um, had I brought my wife with me to, to meet with these, you know, she would have flagged that because she wasn't thinking that way. She just wanted, you know, the best outcome for me. She was terrified. She didn't, you know, understand the American system at all, but you know, she knows people. And I think that that would have made a world of difference. So, um, uh, that was another uh, error on, on my part. You know, what wasn't such a big issue in your case, but of course we know is the case with a lot of our, um, of people going through this is the budget and the, and the competing um, interests and the, and, and the competition for the dollars. Yes. So there's, uh, you only have a certain amount of money that you have available or that you can spend. Um, and if the lawyers are competing against the forensic experts or competing against the accountants or competing against um, all of this for the same pot of money, somebody has to be the safeguard. Somebody has to be the paymaster to make sure that the funds are being spent in the way that's most beneficial to the client. And that's a hard thing to do when you're the client, if you have no perspective and no experience in these things at all. Uh, look, I, I, you actually hit on uh, a point, which I think uh, just occurred to me. And I think that's exactly right. The dynamic is uh, you're getting these bills when you're the client, uh, you're paying them and um, you really don't feel like you can push back on any of those because what if that affects the quality of the advice that you're getting? What if uh, your defense attorney has a card to play and he's just not going to play it for you because he's upset that you are arguing over an item on the bill? So, you know, the idea of having uh, a third party, somebody who's there, who is uh, evaluating these things makes uh, complete sense to me because it really is an awkward position for the client to be in that situation where they're trying to, um, they're trying to get the best outcome for themselves, the best advice, yet at the same time, you know, that's sort of uh, counter to the idea that you're also trying to make sure um, that the legal dollars are being spent wisely. So um, it's certainly, um, you know, I, early on, I wasn't in, in any situation to try to, uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't make any argument about uh, the legal budget. And look, candidly, um, more than half of it was spent on a review of my Google emails, of which less than a fraction of 1% were related to work. Um, and uh, resulted in over half of the legal budget that was spent up until the time I uh, switched attorneys. I mean, when you think about it, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? Um, because you were only going to get not even a limited insight into your business activities. Um, really, you know, there should have just been an insistence to uh, push those aside and let's get the real emails and let's get his actual work IMs. Again, you know, so much is so obvious in 2020 hindsight, but... You know, ju ju just, ju just to be clear, especially to the, uh, to the people who'll be uh, watching this who are maybe business students or law students or, or people who are going through the throes of these issues themselves, yes. um, a small fortune is spent reviewing documents yes. and emails, but none of them are the documents about the transaction itself 
on the day it happened. Yes. So, so that would be tantamount, for example, to going to being hit by a car and going to a personal injury attorney and they're reviewing everything other than the moment you were hit by the car. It, yeah, uh, that's right. I, you know, it, it, and I think that was known in my case. It was rather uh, in the context of this quote-unquote cooperation where you're coming forth with anything whatsoever that could be helpful to uh, the prosecutors. And so it has to do with, gosh, did you cross the line anywhere else? Uh, what else is there, you know, is there in your emails that we can use against you un- ultimately, mm-hmm. which, you know, is an ironic, you know, sort of turn of events, but, um, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was the dynamic. I find it so interesting because in my background, you know, this, that I, I was general counsel to some large family owned real estate companies. And one of them, um, was indicted and there was a seizure and all of their records were seized and. So not only was the, were the companies uh, indicted, but many of the um, senior management and owners were indicted. And I was general counsel to the firm. I came in after, and I was the paymaster. So there were dozens of criminal defense attorneys who um, I wasn't the criminal. I wasn't the uh, the criminal defense attorney, but they had to explain everything. And so there was a big, big context. And they had to submit their bills to me and they didn't get paid until they were approved. And I wanted, before I approved any bills, because I, my client was the one paying the bills, I had to understand how that fit into, you know, into the entire strategy. It was much more efficient than had they just been submitting their bills to my client who was wealthy, but um, was shell-shocked the same way you were. There's no way he could have figured it all out. So um, I think that that's a very important role that um, not too many people take advantage of. Look, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, the reality was I, these were things that I, you know, at least in the first phase prior to the guilty plea, I was just, it was just not even, I'm just not even thinking about that type of thing, right? Because uh, I'm, I, Yeah, I, it would have been great to have had somebody to think about that type of stuff because I certainly wasn't. Uh, nor did I feel like I could because of the you know awkward position I felt that it might put me in vis-a-vis my my defense attorneys. Sure. Um, what other uh, takeaways or lessons learned do you think that you had here? Um, well, I mean, you know, I I, uh, I haven't spoken much about the the case. Um, I um, I do have a pretty strong opinion about. The motivations of the actors involved, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, myself, um, sort of the, the the way that it's been spun in terms of the narrative for the media. Um, I've even thought about uh, the FBI agents. I, you know, a very um, a very curious thing happened about a year after I pled, which is that the FBI agents who were assigned to my case began to rotate off and transfer to different parts of the FBI. And the last one to transfer off of my case was a very nice, very nice guy who had been very nice to me, you know, through my arraignment mm-hmm. and through the entire process. And he called me up and he said, you know, uh, Richard, I just want to apologize for everything that happened to you. And I, I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? What do you mean? He's like, oh, just, he's like, I, none of the stuff that I just didn't think that it would, uh, things would have turned out the way they did when we, when, when we, when we first approached you on the street. 
And I was like, what are you talking about, man? And, uh, and then I think he realized he said a bit too much. And he's like, anyway, I've got to go. I wish you'd rest. And, and I, I've never spoken to him since. Um, I, I now feel very much so that um, in hindsight, uh, this is after a, a, a new evidence came to light um, and he was aware of it, but I wasn't. That I think he uh, maybe felt a bit guilty about what had occurred because I think he understood that there was a strong argument that what I had asserted the entire time was true. The, um, you know, I guess the one thing um, that I realize is that everybody has their own motivations and it's important to always keep that in mind. The prosecutor may get to, for a period of his time, represent the United States versus, but he is also thinking about what's next for him in life, whether it's uh, a political position or uh, a more well-paying job doing white-collar defense at a, at a firm. There is an entire, as you, as you say, Jeff, ecosystem of, 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 of people who have motivations uh, of which you are largely transactional in that process. And I think it's, I think it's really important to sort of, uh, um, I think it's just important to know that um, um, as you're going through it, because you know, that attorney that you are with or those prosecutors are only, you know, walking with you for a very short period of time and then they move on. So, um, and they know that. And I think that's something else to, to sort of keep in mind. Well, if you weren't the one going through it, if you, if you were the negotiator or you were doing it for customer or client, then you would understand or it would be your job to understand what the um, agenda was or the motivation of all the, of all the various players at the table. And, and that calculus you'd be able to do all throughout the process, but it's impossible to do when, when, when it's you and your family in their, in their sights, it's impossible. Yeah. I mean, and also look, I mean, I, I don't know if this is because I grew up in the Midwest. Sometimes I believe that I have a, I'm more naive than others. Um, but the way I grew up, you know, those are the good guys, you know, they're out for truth. They're out for justice. They're not out for themselves. And I think that that's something that I didn't really understand was not necessarily the case until, unfortunately, you know, my own case. So, um, yeah, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, but, and look, and that's not to say that people in this situation, everybody has these ulterior hidden agendas. Uh, that's certainly not to say that at all, because I do know um, some people who've gone through these cases and felt that they were treated very fairly. Mm -hmm. They have no um, sense of bitterness about what occurred. They recognize they did something wrong and they accepted responsibility for it and have moved on with their lives. Um, but I just think that the possibility of it for it is there and it's something that people should be aware of. Richard, um, you know, I'm a huge admirer of yours and, 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 I have been all along, but even to um, rip open this wound and talk about it um, and do it really for the benefit of, of other people, mostly. And I'm sure that uh, um, you're looking for some form of closure, but you don't need, you know, you don't need to, re to go through all of this in order to get closure. So I, I, I think this is a hugely generous act on your part. And oh, no, 
thank you for the opportunity. Um, you're right, Jeff. It's not, you know, I'm generally very reticent about this. I can't imagine I'd do something like this in the future. But uh, it also, I would like to at least insert the question um, with respect to the narrative that's been put out there and advanced by so much um, uh, media um, um, about what, what happens, not just with myself, but the, the larger case and this era in time. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to at least raise a question regarding that. So, um, Richard, uh, thank you for, uh, for coming on this podcast and, um, we'll have some show notes that, uh, with some of your background and, uh, some contact information if people want to want to get in touch with you and, uh, you know, God bless you and your family. And, uh, I hope to see you all soon. You as well. Thank you, Jack. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.